listening to the Fish on Ted podcast with your host, Ted Johnson. Well, hello, this is Ted Johnson with the Fish on Ted podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. If you are interested in knowing when this is being recorded, well, this is being recorded right in the season of COVID-19. I think we're recording this on May the 15th. And uh, um, I'm pleased to hear that so many places are starting to uh, open up again for fishing. Uh, sounds like New York is opening up, um, the city, uh, the, the state of New York anyway, up north towards Lake Ontario. And I just talked to uh, one of our past guests, um, Ian Britton over on the Toronto side, and they're opening up things there for them to go out and start charter fishing on Lake Ontario. So again, we're really excited. A lot of guys now uh, are uh, ramping up in Florida and Texas um, in, the, in the great Northwest. We're still a little bit behind everybody, but uh, sounds like we're opening up there also in the coming days. And maybe we've got this damn thing behind us. And so uh, we're real excited to see where the next 30 days go. Today, we've got um, a great interview with a guy from the great Northwest, and he's got a little bit of a twist on his business that uh, we'll be talking about today, but I'm not going to steal his thunder. Uh, Dylan, hey, are you there, man? I'm here, Ted, and thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Just to uh, give people a little background, you have a company uh, that's called DGG Fishing, and you are a fishing guide but you are also a fly fishing instructor at uh, one of the major universities in Oregon. Is that right? Yes. And so just kind of a crazy happenstance that that even happened. Um, but uh, I have a pretty strong background in fly fishing. I really love to fly fish and uh -huh. worked as a fly fishing guide up in Alaska for about five years and just, kind of fell into this situation where Oregon State, which is in the state of Oregon, obviously, has a lot of great fly fishing opportunity. And so the person that runs the physical activity courses over at the university, they wanted to integrate this fly fishing class, which is actually something they've done um, for the past 25 or 30 years. And it just so happened that one of the longtime instructors had not, not fallen out, but had to move back to California. And so she could no longer teach and there was this opportunity available. And she was very, I was very fortunate that she put me in touch with the, the program director over there. So I kind of fell into this position of teaching high fishing classes. And then so not to get too off track, I did a graduate certificate at Oregon State where we actually, not we, me, developed uh, specific course content to help engage and bring in more people into the world of fly fishing and keep them engaged and want to participate, continue fly fishing, kind of pass the course. That was the, the main goal of the project there. So wow, very long-winded like, yeah. answer. <laughs> sounds like you had divine intervention in that one. You, this is your destiny, man. Yeah, I, I truly tell people that it was – I've been very fortunate to fall into that situation. It was just stars aligned. Like most things that I think people will, that are big into the fly fishing world would agree, um, or they would probably uh, see some similarity to this in their own lives. But I was just actually hanging out at a fly shop, um, and that's how this whole thing came together, and I got put into that position. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. So how, how in the world yeah. did you? How in the world did you get such a, a, a passion for fishing? Did, did you grow up in Oregon? I did not grow up in Oregon. I moved here to go to college. I grew up in uh, central or, or northern California. I guess there's probably some debate on that. But in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my dad is a huge fisherman. We'd fish basically every weekend um, when I was a kid growing up. His dad, my grandfather, fisherman, he was actually the one that kind of imparted the fly fishing gene. He taught me how to fly cast at a very early age. 
think I was oh, 10 wow. or 11. And it was a pretty long three days in the front yard, and there was a lot of yelling. But when that was all said <laughs> and done, I, I could cast a fly rod. <laughs> and then also my mom's dad was huge, huge fisherman. So fishing was really obviously not, you know, they weren't commercial fishermen or fishing guides or anything like that. They all had regular jobs. Uh, but fishing was really important just in my upbringing um, in what all of us do our time. and just, you know it's just a great activity um, something I love in my own guiding business is that I'm a part of everybody's you know memories that they make out in the water and yeah when I look back you know it's the memories that I made with my dad and my grandfathers and really instilled this passion to fish um, and, you know, eventually fly fish once I became more proficient at, at other methods. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, if, if I surmise that up, it was like you had no choice, man, if, with the oh, your your dad and your grandfathers and everybody fishing. I mean, <laughs> holy smokes, you, you had to fit in. <laughs> yeah. I'll be done. Yeah. And, and even most of my cousins, they all they all fish. I actually just had a couple of them out on a steelhead trip here about a month month and a half ago now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So that so you moved to um, the the uh, great state of Oregon and Corvallis, where Oregon State University. Is. When, when did you move there? So I moved uh, to Corvallis when I was seventeen to go to college. Um, I was in a I was in a fisheries program at Oregon State, which I ended up completing. But it was interesting when I moved up to Corvallis. I came from this environment where a lot of the salmon fishing that we did was out in the ocean. And moving to Corvallis and here in the Northwest, there's incredible salmon steelhead fishing and trout fishing as well in the rivers and stories. We just don't is not super prevalent in the area that I grew up in California is another area. So there's this huge draw. Once I moved up here and I found all of these new fisheries, I knew I wasn't leaving. I wasn't going anywhere. Really? You found home, man. Yeah. Big time. Wow. That's cool. And so you're, uh, what, what you're living in Philomath. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I live in Philomath, which is just a, it's not technically a suburb. It's just a small town outside of Corvallis, but it could be compared to a, a suburb, I guess, of Corvallis because it's about five, five to eight minutes from the university here, Oregon State. Yeah. And yeah. just offers great access. Oh, sorry, Ted. Oh, no, that's all right. No. It, uh, um, yeah, Philomath is a cool place. It is. I enjoy living there. It has great access. Um, we have the main highway, Highway 34, that runs through town. So depending on what time of the year, I can jump on and turn left or jump on and turn right, and there's great fisheries um, in either direction. Absolutely. Now, you know, yeah. in Philomath, in uh, just get off track a little bit, isn't there a timber family there that set up a, a trust that if you are from Philomath, they pay for your schooling? At, at OSU. So, I have heard all these different rumors from, from different people. In fact, not to even get off on further off track, but there's a new little bar that opened in town. And so, a lot of the locals go there and, and they'll, I've heard, you know, talk about this scholarship or trust that was set up back and forth. What I've heard is that this trust was set up for kids to go to any college of their choosing, not just Oregon State. Um, uh -huh. But they found that, or over time, they noticed the, the family that some of the kids or some of the other families in the town started to become very anti-logging, and so they don't offer the, and the trust or the scholarship anymore. That's what I've mm -hmm. heard. I don't know how much fact or truth there is to it, but... Yeah, I mean, this has been, uh, goes back a, a number of years, and it kind of dates me a little bit, but uh, uh, I knew some of the people that were involved in that, and at that time, that was back in the, oh, 80s, as long as you were went through 
Palomath High School. And mm-hmm. if you're from Palomath High School, you got a, a four-year scholarship. And it was just tuition and books. So that was a big deal, you know, just by, yeah. by coming from Palomath. And then they sort of yeah. changed because everybody was moving to Palomath so they could get free education for their kids. <laughs> and then Palomath turned around and they said, well, you've got to come, you know, spend 12 years in Palomath all the way from grade school through college. And that yeah. kind of cut back a little bit, you know, the people moving to Volomath mm-hmm. or at least getting an apartment there, if you may. But uh, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so in, in Volomath, if you head west, um, in about an hour's time, depending on the what fork in the road you take, you're going to end up on the Pacific Ocean. So that gives people an idea of where you're at. But uh, there are a numerous amount of rivers and streams that um, you come across as you make that trek. And that's where you spend a good portion of your time, isn't it? Yes, and it's almost kind of funny, or maybe poetic, depending on how you look at it, that uh, with such proximity to the ocean, I probably do less ocean fishing than all of my, you know, other fisheries combined. Um, uh-huh. Which Oregon does have fantastic ocean fishing, but like you said, when you get on the highway, it's hard to drive five or 10 miles to not see some body of water. Um, and if there's a body of water, the one thing I that there will be fish. You know, we have uh, steelhead, salmon, um, rainbow trout, and cutthroat trout. Although usually if you go to the west side, so out towards the coast, not many rainbow trout because they all migrate out to the ocean or steelhead. Right. Um, now, for a, from a guide standpoint or from my business, um, unfortunately, we can't fish all of those because some, you know, or you have to walk in or wade in or maybe the access just isn't that great. So there's three primary fisheries that all target. And that coastal side of the, of the range, um, the Alls River, the first and my favorite, and I'll fish that for winter steelhead and all shit up. There's the Celeste River, which I'm sure there's, you know, there's books and videos and there's a lot of content out there on the Celeste. It's right. semi-famous. Um, in fact, the one thing that I've always been drawn to the Celeste about is the uh, the book, River Y. You've probably heard of it, Ted. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, the book, River Y, it's not really about a specific river, but it, it pulls kind of themes and, and places along the Celeste into it. You know, it's a combination kind of of the Celeste and the Halem um, is what I've heard. So that mm-hmm. river, amazing, great fall Chinook fishing um, and winter steelhead. They also have returns of summer steelhead and, and spring Chinook, which unfortunately haven't been the most robust the last couple of years, but they do, you can fish for them and, and they're very fun, exciting fisheries. And then the Yaquina, which is the uh, the main river that flows out into Newport Bay, and that has phenomenal salmon fishing. And when we do go out in the ocean, typically go out of uh, launch there and, and run out the bar there in the out of the Yaquina into the ocean. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll be darned. I'll be darned. Yeah, the Celets is a, I mean, the the the, uh, the Celets Indian tribe is there, and and uh, it's a very famous river. I've floated it uh, a, a number of times, and do they call it horseshoe? That float where you can park your your car and your boat, and you float like seventeen miles, yeah, take out, and you're only like a quarter mile from where you parked your car. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. And actually, it was funny this year. That was the most productive float to do, or first one. I for for some reason, you know, the rivers change kind of a little bit every year, and and something changed over the past from last year to this. And the fish just really loved hanging out in that stretch, and it was oh, quite productive. Actually, a couple of days we would just you know double float that and walk back to the truck, get the uh-huh. rig, and go back up to the top and do it again. I'll be darn. Now, are you yeah. are you fly fishing most of the time when you're doing this, or or do you spend uh, some time with uh, conventional gear? What um, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question, Ted. And I actually get uh, a lot of guests that ask me that. In fact, there are some guests that uh, 
they call me up and they're like, oh, I really want to go fishing, but I don't want to fly fish because, you know, fly fishing kind of this daunting, almost uh, scary fishing, right? You know, this requires a lot of skill. But in all honesty, um, for steelhead, I probably do 30% of my trips as fly fishing trips. So over the course of a season when I'll do, you know, about 40 trips between January and, and the end of March, um, 40, 45, about 10 of those or 12 of those fly fishing trips. Um, mm-hmm. Now for and fly fishing for steelhead, it is very difficult and it is daunting for people. And so that's something that I typically will talk with people beforehand and see kind of where their skill level is. Because in the end, I want people to go out and have fun um, and not, you know, try and do something that's so overwhelming. Um, as I transition in and start fishing a little later in the summer and through the fall where I'm doing some trout fishing, um, that's a fishery where I'll fish basically only fly fishing um, mm-hmm. because it just lends itself a lot better for it's easier to learn it's easier to cast and plus it's a lot more fun in my opinion to catch an inch trout on a fly rod versus a spinning rod so to answer your question there's a lot of variation there steelhead and salmon a lot less you know i'll do 80 to 70 percent of my trips conventional fishing and then with Mm -hmm. trout 95 percent of my trips are are with a fly rod now, when the the waters that you fish, can you uh, can you keep fish, or is it all catch and release? That is another great question. Um, most of the areas that I fish, at least for salmon and steelhead, offer some type of retention. And here in the Northwest, it's actually something that I wasn't very familiar with until I moved here. They have what we call hatchery fish and a wild fish. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, hatchery fish, it was raised in a hatchery and then put it well. Here in the Northwest, our hatchery salmon and steelhead, they're raised in a hatchery until they're six inches. For steelhead, they raise until they're about 12 inches. They release them, they go out to the wild, migrate, and they come back. And so on a lot of our rivers, we have a mix of wild salmon and steelhead that respond in the wild and do their own migration, and then these hatchery salmon and steelhead which will raise to a you know, sm- relatively small size, a couple inches, 12 inches released in return. And on all mm-hmm. these rivers, we can keep and harvest these hatchery fish um, because by keeping them, we're not, you know, diminishing the population of wild fish. Now, there's some exceptions to that. Sometimes we can keep wild fish. Uh, but for the most part, all the areas that I fish do have some fish retention, and it is because of these hatchery fish that are in the system that basically put there for us anglers to harvest and be able to take home. Um, and most of the people, even the fly fishermen, they don't complain when they're taking home a nice slab of, you know, steelhead or, or spring chinook, like we were talking uh, the other day, you know, they're just amazing and great eating fish. They oh, look there for us to, to enjoy, you know, and, yeah. uh, and, and eat. <laughs> and, and you fish primarily, um, at least for the fishery we've been talking about, uh, with a drift boat, do you not? Yeah, so most of the fishing I'll do is out of my drift boat. Um, I just recently purchased a sled here last year, which I guess I should explain because I'm sure there's people that maybe aren't from the Northwest, but a sled is just a large open aluminum boat. My uncle that lives in Illinois, I love him to death, but he looks at my boat and he just calls it a John boat. So you could kind of imagine it's just a large open <laughs> aluminum type boat, right? right? Uh, and then it has a jet propulsion outboard on it. So it can run uh-huh. in very shallow water. Um, but so I do, I used to do most of my trips out of my drift boat. And then I recently uh, purchased this more larger jet, jet boat, aluminum boat. And uh, I've started to run a number of trips with it over the last year. Um, and then I'm also using it a lot in my own personal time, just out scouting and researching new fisheries and finding new fisheries. So 
coming up into, you know, 2021 and 2022, I'll probably start transitioning and doing more trips out of that boat. Right. Um, and, 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 the, that, and the, oh, the sled, you can, you can carry more people in the sled, right? You can, which a little, uh, kind of a niche thing about my business, which not necessarily niche, but different than how some, some, uh, guides operate is that most of my groups are pretty small to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. two anglers for the most part. And so while with the larger boat, I can't accommodate larger groups, but that boat offers really is access to different bodies of water. So I was out spring Chinook fishing the other day in that boat and I was fishing with a friend because we have our, we had our guiding kind of shut down up until this week and we were blasting through water that was three inches in depth, you know, and we're in a 20 foot aluminum boat with wow. all of our gear and tackle you know accessing water that you otherwise couldn't get to with a drift boat because you know there's no launches and you can't go upstream in anything that doesn't have the the jet outboard so mm -hmm. for me that boat's really about the access and not so much about offering you know trips to larger groups but just offering better quality trips you know to my to my smaller type groups Ah, makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. And 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 you're right. I mean, the the sleds are very, very much of a flat a flat bottom boat. But you know, one of the things that's always amazed me about a sled, and I don't know how they do it, but they they troll in a pretty straight line too. And so you would think those those boats are going to be turning in the water. You're always having to adjust it. But um, the the manufacturers have figured that one out. Yeah. I'm going to hand it to him. Actually, something that I didn't realize about these sleds until I owned one um, is they actually put or call rakes on the bottom of the boat. And so even though it's flat bottom, they have these. Uh, it's not a chine because the chine's on the side, but they're they're almost like tracking guides on the bottom of the boat. Um, they're just little metal bars that run along the bottom and that helps the boat track and balance in the water instead of squirreling all around on you. It's crazy what, you know, obviously there's people put a ton of time, you know, probably as much time as a fishing guide would put into learning a new fishery into building boats, right? Probably more, yeah. in all honesty. <laughs> all yeah. more. Now you also fish, um, I think you mentioned it, the McKinsey, and then um, some of the other uh, rivers there in the Willamette Valley? Yes, I do. Actually, I, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm staring at a large pile of gear that's going in the boat tomorrow. And I will be headed off down to the McKenzie uh, to do some spring shift fishing. And oh, really? very, very fun fishery. Um, it's a... Uh, what a lot of people might call a, a combat style fishery. Um, there's a lot of anglers that are out there. Um, there's not a ton of available spots to fish, but the reward is you get to catch a spring Chinook. And as you're, you know, and I know they are one of the, the best eating um, salmon species on the planet. Probably they oh, yeah. just have incredibly high Omega fatty threes. And, uh, yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, I'm actually already starting to think about tomorrow. I've been thinking about it all day because it'll be the first trip of the season over there. And, uh, and it's a ton yeah. of fun. The McKenzie is a beautiful river. You oh, yeah. get there in the morning and watch the sun come up over the water. And when we're salmon fishing, you have the kicker motor going to so smell the smoke of the kicker motor and drink your coffee and you'll see them see the salmon jump. I mean, it's crazy to think a 10, 15, 20 pound fish will just jump clear out of the water for no reason. But they do. Oh yeah. It's exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you're, you're fishing below Lieberg, I would imagine, aren't you? Yes. Um, yeah. Actually, even, even as of the last couple of years, which um, I've only been fishing over on that system for three years as opposed to the, the South San AM where I've been fishing over there for about 12 or 10, yeah. 10 years. Um, the, there's two hatcheries 
on the Mackenzie. And there's a Lieberg hatchery up below the dam. And I believe currently, or over the last couple of years, they phased out all of their spring Chinook releases at that hatchery. And instead, oh, wow. all of the all of the hatchery spring Chinook, um, which the run on that river is predominantly hatchery fish, right. come out of the, I think it's the Rock Creek hatchery, um, which yep. is just below Greenwood, which is about four miles probably below Lieber Dam. And so I'll do most of my fishing in that section. Um, <laughs> the first time I went over there and fished uh, about three years ago, just to scout it out and start learning that area, I launched at the dam, and I was the only boat up there. I floated down. Oh, really? got to, yeah, I got to Greenwood. I thought it was strange because it was the middle of the season, like a couple weeks yeah. later than right now, so first week of June. And I got down to the Greenwood ramp, which is about three and a half miles downstream and there's 20 boat trailers parked there and <laughs> immediately we started catching fish and so i was like right. okay well that makes sense that's yeah. why everybody's down in this area <laughs> <laughs> you know it's been years ago god how many years ago now maybe 20 and uh, my my father-in-law lived at the time in iowa and he'd always wanted to come out and fish salmon you know and so i, I grew up on the mckenzie and mm -hmm. uh, we and put in at the the bridge there where the old it was is it the Deerhorn golf course that was there i think that's what it was right and uh, yeah yeah so we put in there and uh, i i had a, a drift boat at the time and and rode on out and had my brother-in-law and my father-in-law in the boat and, and i gave them uh, one of the old uh, hot shot pirates the kind of blue green red <laughs> you know both holes yeah seemed to be real productive and I'm sitting there rowing, and uh, God bless his soul, Floyd's no longer with us, but he wanted to use his Berkeley closed face reel with 20-pound treads <laughs> as the strung on this thing. And it, it was a whopping at least four and a half feet long, and that's what he wanted to use. And so I couldn't talk him out of it, couldn't, and, and he used that, you know? And so all of a sudden, his rod almost jumped out of his hands, and his just game on and this fish was <laughs> every bit of 15 pounds probably closer to 20 bigger than anything i'd ever put in the boat before you know and and that damn line would keep wrapping around the tip of the pole and floyd would set the <laughs> pole down and he'd unhook that and and my brother-in-law and i Mike, uh, uh, we'd yell at him don't do that if it gets tangled up let us do it keep tension on the rock, you know, and he fought this fish and fought this fish and fought this fish, had the net out a couple times and it would run. And finally we're getting it to the boat and this thing was chrome, you know, and it's getting close <laughs> to the boat and getting close to the boat. And that line wrapped around Floyd's Berkeley rod again. And he sets it down as we had told him not to do like for 48 times. And the fish became unhooked, and off it went. And my oh brother, my goodness. just quiet, kind of looking at each other. And Floyd looks at us and goes, "Well, I guess we just need to go get another one." Floyd, you're going to go swimming. <laughs> you know, we didn't we didn't throw him overboard. I'm glad we didn't. But it was it went through our minds, you know. But uh, but uh, you know that 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 little slot underneath that bridge used to be it yeah this will be incredible yeah well well cool so how, how far how far are you going to float down tomorrow I'll, i'm actually going to take out just above the deerhorn bridge so um oh. or not just above it um i'll take out lieber which is the section just above the deerhorn right. bridge um, right. Yeah. Typically, I'll just fish that stretch. Uh, I know uh, a lot of the, the spots in there really well. Really pick apart the But sometimes, I mean, I know that slot you're talking about. Um, it's actually funny your story. You mentioned jumping in the water because a couple seasons back, two seasons ago on McKenzie. I was fishing with this group of guys. This first time they fished me, and they had we had a little slope 
bit of a slow morning, and they finally hooked up on a really nice fish, worked it up towards the boat, just getting ready to net it, and we could see the fish is tiring because it's starting to roll over, and we can tell it's a keeper. And right as it slides into the net, when we walk the line, things fly right up over the angler's head. Oh. But fish didn't break off. The hook just popped out. Right. Okay. No big deal, guys. We're going to get another one. Motor, or we, you know, get the boat over to the side of the river. And I look down at the bottom of the river, which at this point, it's a quite deep pool, probably five or six foot deep. And I see the fish. Really? It just came unhooked. It was so tired from the fight. It probably had been hooked deep, um, you know, when it initially struck and then the hook pulled out yeah. from the throat. And it was rolled over on its side, laying on the bottom of the river trying to revive itself. And so I knew, because these fish are so rare and you only get so many chances, um, that we needed to get that fish. So right as it's starting to kind of wiggle and come back to life, I jumped out of the boat into the water, <laughs> grabbed the fish, and I forget I have one of these inflatable PCs on, right? That's water oh, activated. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, really? <laughs> so I jumped in, grabbed the fish. My life jacket explodes open, which it, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these before. When they go off, they'll actually kind of throw this white powdery dust. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, it's something from the CO2 cartridge. Throw the fish in the bottom of the boat and then climb back in. And it happened so quickly, I didn't have time to tell the guests that I was going to jump into the water. So they thought I fell overboard completely. Um, and when the fish hit the deck, they were awestruck. And uh, it started a great relationship. They book now once a year to do that trip with me. I think probably just because of that experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So, so yeah. this time here, what what are you what are you fishing with uh, on that on that ship? Don't I mean don't don't give me the secret sauce, uh, you know, yeah. uh, scent and stuff. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, are you are you plugging it? Or are you bobbering it? Or what are you doing? You know, great question, Ted. And I also want to say I don't think I have anything you know crazy secret out there. So if anybody's listening to this and you're in the area and you ever want to talk more in depth than what I'm going to mentioned here in the podcast, they're always welcome to reach out to me, um, oh, awesome. you know, through my website or a phone call, but my simple technique or my philosophy to any sort of fishing is have a couple techniques and know them very well. And so mm -hmm. there's two primary techniques that I'll use and basically one that I'll use. Um, and then there's another technique that I'll use just in some specific type water um, both of these are what we, what we call here in the Northwest back trolling techniques, where you're just using your boat to, and a, with a motor, typically. I like to use mm -hmm. a motor because I'll fish, you know, day in and day out, so my arms will get tired on the sticks right. every day. But you use the motor to get your boat going slower than the current, and then you can let out your line either on the end of that line, either have a diver, which pulls your line down in the current, down to the depth of the salmon are, or you can have a lead weight on. Mm -hmm. My primary technique is back trolling with a diver. It's a really simple method, and it's a great method for my guests, most of which, you know, this is their first time, or maybe they only go out a couple times a year, um, because they can deploy their line, they can put their rod in the rod holder, and then I can do most of the work with the motor by holding the boat in the current, using these divers, which they pull, they catch the current and kind of pull your line down near the bottom. And then mm -hmm. I can try to finagle those divers down into the, the holes and the slots that the fish are laying in. Um, okay. And then on the end of that, so we have our diver that's connected to our main line. And then off of that, I'll just run a, a very simple five foot, five and a half foot leader. I'm not neurotic like some people i just go arm's length on my leader i don't mm -hmm. measure them out to a specific length about arm length leader to a two odd or a three odd hook and then the magic the thing that really does make a difference is the bait on the end of it and i've fished with people from all over the world i've been very fortunate and fished in a lot of different places in the u.s a couple places abroad um, i've never fished another area like the northwest and spring chinook in particular, that required 
is specialized bait to catch mm-hmm. fish. Um, mm-hmm. And really, I, I use uh, cured salmon eggs, and there's a ton of different cures out there. And there's cured salmon eggs. There's eggs you can buy already cured. And there's other things that you can add on to your bait, sand shrimp and tuna and sardine and herring. Um, but the biggest and most important factor is that you just have a good, fresh bait, you know, whether that's your eggs, um, whether that's your tuna, and make sure that you're keeping it cold on ice. Mm-hmm. A lot of those rivers, they're, you know, it's warm. You know, this week, not so much, but some days, you know, it'll get up to 100 degrees by the time you're off the water. And, uh, and make sure that you have confidence in it. So I only fish baits when I'm going out with guests that I know have caught fish. So whether that's a specific cure on my salmon eggs, and usually I'll carry two or three cures to have some variety and whatnot. So pretty mm-hmm. simple rig. Like I said, the, the only important aspect there is, is the bait, you know, making yeah. sure that the bait's fresh, that it's cured properly and that uh, it's properly stored, you know, being the biggest factors. Yeah. So, so this time of year is the kind of the McKenzie, your, your go-to river. Yep. The McKenzie, I'll go over there and fish. Typically my annual start date is the 15th, which is tomorrow and I'll be over there. And then I'll go till about the end of June. And sometimes you can fish a little later. There are people that, that fish later than me, but June 30th is about when I'll wrap up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, go on and do some other, other fisheries. And, and, uh, and then I also do at the same time that I'm over on the McKenzie salmon fishing, uh, trout fishing over on the South St. Am and on the McKenzie. And both of these rivers, too, you can't catch steelhead. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we haven't had the greatest steelhead runs or returns the last couple of years. Um, but, uh, but they are well-known steelhead rivers and we do catch them. It's just that there hasn't been as many fish returning for, for a couple, you know, number of reasons. Yeah. So you'll, you'll catch a yeah. steelhead while you're salmon fishing. Oh yeah. And well, you know, you, you catch steelhead when you're salmon fishing, which is a nice surprise. Uh, the big surprise is when you catch one, when you're trout fishing. And <laughs> uh, over the last couple of years, I looked at the, the, the data and we'll hook in the month of June, typically we'll hook one steelhead every three, three trips, trout fishing. And, uh, I've yet, we've yet to actually ever land one on a trout rod, you know, because the line, the line and the leader is so light. Um, we do mm-hmm. land them all the time when we're specifically targeting steelhead, but, uh, sure. it, it's a lot of special things have to come together, I think, to for a guest to land one on a fly rod. Hasn't happened yet, but this year yeah. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'll be darned. So, so a little bit uh, on on fly fishing. I mean, uh, the McKenzie River is for those that don't know where you're fishing um, down, probably down below a little bit below Hendricks where you're going. Right, um, it's a bigger yeah. river. You know, you've got a lot of room to the cast of, you know, back cast of, 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 you know, fly line and put it out where you want, you want it. So it isn't real technical in that respect. And it's a great place to learn, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I will say that that lower area that you're talking about below Hendricks, which is a beautiful stretch of river. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's a great area to kind of cast and learn. It is, it can be kind of tough fishing because um, well, unless they're going to change something this year, they don't stock a lot of fish down there. And so the fish that you're targeting are kind of the larger, um, smarter red side native rainbows on the McKenzie. Mm-hmm. You do get stockers kind of below, below Hendricks in that area that just get flushed down. But right. Um, yeah, it, it's a great place to learn to fish, but it can also be quite challenging just in the fact that the fish are smart, you know, and they know what a real bug is and you have to have your drift kind of on top of it um, yeah. as opposed to some of the, the upper stretches that, you know, they're, there's a lot of stockers that they'll put in there. Um, and mm-hmm. so it just creates a little bit, they're just a little easier to catch. And then yeah. definitely compared to the, the South San Yam, which is a great trout fishery, now I kind of wish I didn't say that on the internet, but <laughs> very good trout, very good trout fishery. Um, not a lot of big fish, but a lot, 
a lot of just of the numbers. You know, there's a lot of fish in there, and they're mm-hmm. they bite really well, and and that's actually, in my opinion, a much better location for a beginner to learn because they're going to get a lot of positive feedback right on. Right. You know, they're going to get that feedback right away. I mean, yeah. there's places that we'll pull in, and I know that you know they're going to get a chance at six or eight or twelve fish, and eventually right. they're going to hook one of them. <laughs> Right, right. You know, it's, it amazes me, uh, Dylan, how much the Northwest has come back when it comes to trout fishing in the rivers and stuff. I mean, it, yeah, it got to a point a number of years ago where, you know, if you caught a 12-inch fish, that was a big fish, you know. But now <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, it's starting to come back a little bit, you know, and, and there's, there's bigger fish in those stretches. And, and uh, for somebody that... Um, you know, once it, once once one of those river runs through it type moments, you know, get in the drift boat, grab your fly rod, you know, and and hook a you know eighteen or nineteen inch red side. You'll never forget that. I mean, it's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah absolutely incredible. And, and you know, I think that's a it's a good point to bring up, Ted, because I think another thing that's kind of happening in Oregon is that there's a big transition. And you could probably attest to this, but in, in the eighties or a lot of the guys that I talked to that were fishing here in the eighties, you know, salmon, steelhead, and Mm -hmm. not so much interest in the trout. And I think a lot of people are starting to, you know, give a lot of value to going out and and trout fishing. And, you know, even though it's not, you're not going to catch that, you know, monster 10 pound, 15 pound steelhead or 20 pound salmon, um, you know, an 18, 19 inch red side is a phenomenal fish. And it's a fish that it, it's not easy to catch, you know, it requires uh, patience and skill and, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of commitment. And I think people yeah. are, are starting to kind of, like I said, give more value to that, get out and, and get back into trout fishing and, and fly fishing and, in general too. And I think something that I've seen at the university is that uh, there's a lot of young people that are getting into fly fishing. And surprisingly, you know, one of the biggest barriers to entry for young people, it's twofold into the outdoor fishing in particular, is A, they didn't have somebody to teach them the sport when they grew up, you know, whether that's fishing or hunting. And then now that they're older, they don't have somebody to go with. Um, Right. So whether that's like a friend or their dad or, you know, just fishing buddy. So I think uh, there's a lot of young people that are, the culture now isn't so much like, oh, I have to have somebody to go out and do this stuff with because, you know, there's a lot of resources on YouTube and on the internet and there's a lot of forums and shoot, like there's a, this class that I teach at Oregon State. Um, so just becoming a little bit easier for people to learn and, and get out and participate in those sort of fly fishing type things. So when you, you have somebody that comes uh, with you on a trip and they haven't fly fished a lot, is the, is the day a little bit different on the water with you? I mean, are you spending time in, in wide open pools and stuff to, uh, you know, teach them how to cast and that sort of thing? Well, anytime I get somebody that's brand new, I always account for about an hour to an hour and a half of just casting practice, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is nice when we're in a, you know, a guided type situation, because even though you are casting and learning, you still also have the potential to catch a fish. And I can't tell you how many fish we catch right in the, the casting or the learning part of the day. Um, but, uh, definitely just specifically accounting for time to teach that person. And my big motto is like giving them the skill set and the skills to, you know, continue on and cast throughout the day. So I personally like taking out people that have never fly fished before. And I always feel like it's a success if, um, you know, I don't put six, you know, a, uh, fish in the same category as success, right? My definition of fly fishing of success is at the end of the day, were they able to cast? Did they feel proficient and effective? And did they have fun? 
Um, and, and fun is actually definitely above those other things because, mm-hmm. you know, fly fishing, fishing in general is about having, having fun. And, you know, yes, I've always found that if you account for those things, usually the fish will follow most of the time. And now are you generally dry fly fishing or do you, uh, uh, nymph or how do you, how do you fish for trout? I fish, uh, and I hope I don't, nobody sends me any emails or, uh, phone calls or any, you know, hate mail about this, but I predominantly (laughs) fish subsurface. Um, yeah, yeah, I nymph fish a lot and, you know, we're using the little bobbers. Most Mm -hmm. fly anglers call them indicators, right? Um, right. Right, but it's a but, uh, but. yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of the rivers around here, especially in the early part of the season, they run pretty cold. Um, we do have some hatches that'll kind of come off um, early season, you know, March Browns, and um, we even have some stone flies and salmon flies that'll hatch on the Mackenzie and the Saint Anne. But you know, the fish typically with that cooler high water in the spring and early part of the summer, as the reservoirs are are letting out some of that snow melt. They just lend mm-hmm. themselves a lot better to nymph fishing. And my mm-hmm. typical setup is I'll have three nymph rods rigged in the boat, and then I'll have two dry fly rods and then one streamer rod. And so if there is a hatch that comes up, boom, we can transition very easily. It's just, you know, bring in the nymph rods, hook them up, and we can grab a dry fly rod. Um, but then if, you know, no hatch occurs, I'm not going to pound the water and, and try and make something happen if it's not – not going to work um right and and i find that typically nymph fishing a we get into a lot of fish um i rig up i always fish a two fly rig and one fly is always a larger fly like a stone fly pattern right or some other yeah and then a dropper coming down and the Uh great thing about that setup is that i find fishing with that we always get like I said earlier, some opportunities at some steelhead. And so even though we're not landing those fish, I've found that typically if you just hook up with a steelhead, people are pretty blown away by the power and the size. And so it's always nice to have that. Yeah. Have that uh, option. Whereas if you were a dry fly fishing, you know, it happens, but it's pretty unlikely you're going to hook into a steelhead Mm -hmm. have that chance come up. So that's, that's my outlook on it, I guess. But I have them there, always rigged up, ready to go. And if there's a hatch, we'll, we'll take advantage of it. Dry fly fishing Absolutely. can be a lot of fun. I'm sure oh, you've probably oh. done your fair share on the McKenzie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, it, 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 uh, the stars have got to line up just about right, you know, to have an incredible day of dry fly fishing, you know, on the McKenzie. But it does yeah. happen. When, and you yep. can get into those 20 and 30 fish day days you know when the hatch is on and and you've got the right mm-hmm. gear with it um there's there's not a whole lot of things in this world that's more fun than that you know? <laughs> yeah agreed yeah yeah well well dylan how do people get a hold of you if uh they uh, are looking to uh, book a trip this summer yeah great question um i've actually just had some great new work done to my website so they can go on there and fill out a uh, form and shoot that over to me and I can contact them. Um, they can also just give me a call, 650-804-5411. And uh, we can set you up on a you know custom tailored trip to do whatever you want. I actually do trips, um, specifically a lot of trips in the summertime where we do a little bit of fly fishing maybe for trout and steelhead and then a little bit of conventional fishing for steelhead and salmon. And so that's one thing that's real big that I like to to do with my business is really, you know, diversify and offer some different options that people might not otherwise get. And, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, take advantage of all the great fisheries we have. It's kind of a shame in my opinion, not to get too off track here, but, if you're out in a river and that river has salmon, steelhead, and trout, well, why don't we try and catch all three of them? You know? <laughs> so true. So, so yeah. true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I also want to encourage too, if anybody's out there listening and they ever uh, want to talk about fishing, 
or they have questions about fishing um, and not just about booking a trip to please feel free to reach out because uh, you know, I want everybody out there on the water to be successful. And, and I, I am more than happy to share my experiences and tips and tricks um, with those mm-hmm. out there. And if you do want to book a trip, um, I am more than happy. You can ask me questions all day long. I have guests that do it. And I hope that after the trip's done, you have a lot more knowledge. You can go out and be more successful in your own adventures. And uh, then, you know, know that you can always reach back out. I can help you if things aren't working out the way you thought they would. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things you, we don't see as much anymore as we used to, and you brought it up, pretty much anybody that I, I speak with on the podcast, we talk about how they got started fishing. It was always when they were a kid, you know? And so take a kid fishing, take your son or your nephew or your neighbor. Yeah. I mean, you, you, are, you are doing them a lifetime favor, you know, getting them in a boat with a, a guide like yourself and showing them the ropes, you know, because I don't know many people that have gone on fishing trips like that and then don't pursue it right as adults yeah agreed and like i said just the um the data that i saw when i was doing this project um at oregon state is that if there's kids and they have positive outdoor experiences and role models that um push them to be in the outdoors they'll stick with it uh, for the Mm -hmm. course of their lifetime you know and those are the people that end up um you know, helping out with conservation issues and donating money or buying licenses, which, you know, are used to fund conservation things. So that stuff's important um, for all of us that like to fish, like to get outdoors. So absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up, Ted. Oh, my pleasure. Well, Dylan, thank you so much. This has been a whole lot of fun and, and uh, just talking about your, your great business and how you, how you work with people and also doing a little reminiscing on my, home river that's always fun and uh yeah and i'm i'm hopeful that uh you and i can get out on the water here soon maybe on the mackenzie and uh uh maybe not catch you know we won't catch that fish but maybe the progeny a progeny and progeny of that fish right (laughs) that that would be fun i would i'm looking forward (laughs) to taking you up on well well dylan have a great season stay well you know you and your family uh, take care of yourself and, um, you know, uh, wish you the best, not only now, but uh, in the future. Thank you very much, Ted, and the same to you and your family. And um, like I said earlier, feel free if anybody's listening to this and they ever want to talk fishing, Northwest fishing, um, to reach out and give me a phone call or drop me a line uh, via email or through my website. Uh, Absolutely, and and all of the uh, contact information will be on the show notes just below the, podcast channel that you're on so again thanks cool. much, Dylan. Thank you. have a good evening sir all right thanks ted talk to you later bye